0: So what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. This show is supported by State Farm.
1: It's surely striking that virtually all classical states were based on grain. A rare partial exception is the Inca state, relying on maize and potatoes. History records no cassava states, no sago states, no yam states, no taro states, no plantain states, no breadfruit states or sweet potato states. There are banana republics, but that doesn't count. (laughs) Why are grassy grain crops typically barley, rye, wheat, rice, maize, and millets, so closely associated with the earliest states. My guess is that only grains are suited to the concentrated production tax assessment and cadastral surveys, storage, and rationing. Uh, Wheat grows above ground. It usually ripens at about the same time. It's easily gathered and stored. It has relatively high value per unit weight and volume. If the state wants your wheat, it just has to come when it's ripe and it can take it. Or if it doesn't like you, it can burn you out when the crop uh, is ripe and therefore dry. Or better yet, it waits until uh, you have threshed the crop and it takes the threshed wheat from your granary. On suitable soil, it provides the agroecology for dense concentrations of human subjects. If we were evaluating crops from the perspective of a pre-modern tax man, the major grains, above all irrigated rice would be um, among the most preferred, and roots and tubers among the least preferred. It follows, I think, that state formation becomes possible only when there are few alternatives to a diet dominated by domesticated grains. So long as subsistence is spread across several food webs, as it is for hunters and gatherers, swidden cultivators, and marine foragers, the state is unlikely to arise inasmuch as there is no readily accessible and accessible staple to serve as the basis of appropriation
2: welcome to episode 87 of the dangerous history podcast This episode is going to be on the relationship between grain and the state and why the two tend to go together. What you heard before the bumper music was a few little excerpts of a lecture given by Yale University professor James E. Scott entitled How Grains Domesticated Us. I will, of course, link to the full lecture in the show notes for this episode so you can watch it yourself on YouTube if you like. And basically, this episode is largely going to be giving some additional historical background and a lot more elaboration and detail to the basic points Scott was making there. But before we get further into that, though, I have to thank a couple of uh, people, actually three of them, for becoming Patreon supporters of the Dangerous History podcast in recent days. So big thank yous are in order for Justin, for Kyle, and for Doug for signing up to help out the DHP over at Patreon dot com slash prof Remember, if you pledge to support the show for any amount per episode, I will thank you by name in the next one that I record. And if you pledge to help out with at least one buck per episode, and of course more is certainly appreciated, but for just a minimum of a buck per episode, you will have access to special bonus episodes that are available nowhere else. That I put out over there about every four to six weeks. I've done three of them so far, by the way. So if you want more history podcast, that's a great way to. To have more and also help out the show. By the way, if you're doing any Christmas or other holiday shopping, please consider doing it on Amazon after first going through the Amazon affiliate links found at my website. And if you feel like giving in the spirit of the season, if you like my show, please consider going to profcj.org/slash/donate. And there you can find a lot of ways to help out the show, to chip in and help it to keep going and keep improving, including uh, PayPal and Bitcoin, among in addition to Patreon and Amazon. All right, so our story today starts with Paleolithic man. Paleolithic man was a hunter, gatherer, fisherman, and by man here, of course, I mean mankind, men and women, were some combination of hunter, gatherer, and fisherman. Now, there are some differences on the part of experts in the field, of which I certainly do not claim to be one, but the best I can see is that the current view is that our species, Homo sapiens, first evolved in Africa between about 200,000 and 100,000 years ago. Around seventy to 80,000 years ago, there seems to have been some sort of a population crash and our species nearly went extinct. There may have been as few as a couple thousand people alive on the planet for a little while. But then around 60,000 years ago, the population began rebounding strongly and some people left Africa for Eurasia and then later branched out to other parts of the world from there. And in a relatively short amount of time, by about 45,000 years ago, human beings could be found on every continent on Earth except for Antarctica. Now, for over 95% of the years that our species has existed, or until roughly about 11,000 years ago at the very earliest, human beings were living in what scholars today refer to as the Paleolithic Age. Everyone lived a hunter-gatherer lifestyle during this time. And during this period, humans came to occupy almost every environmental niche on planet Earth. World history books often give this long era of our existence a short chapter at most. And in fact, many history books give it less than that, because even though it was the vast majority of time that people have existed, it was a time before writing. So the only sources we have are sort of archaeological and forensic and scientific in nature. Now, during this time period, people lived on a wide variety of foods, depending on season and and where they were and so on, including things like berries, nuts, roots, and animal protein from a variety of sources, including usually a combination of hunting, scavenging, and fishing. But for most of that time, grains were a relatively minor uh, part of the human diet, even in in some cases not at all a part of the human diet. But people were people, and, and people had the same basic brain that we do today for the most part, and early people were already innovating. They were figuring out how to make tools, how to make weapons. Groups of people began trading with each other, and we find evidence that people were already concerned even with things like aesthetics. They were decorating themselves, they were decorating their possessions with pigments and beads and designs and whatnot. They painted in caves, they made sculptures, they made carvings. As humans moved out of Africa and into other diverse environments, they continued to adapt and to innovate everything from different tools and weapons to different types of clothing and nets and other fishing devices, various sorts of containers, even pottery came about during the Paleolithic. Over time, there was sort of a revolution, particularly with blade technology, where blades started to get simultaneously smaller and yet much more effective. Uh, An interesting process that some people compare to today's ever-increasing miniaturization of high-tech hardware. Paleolithic people lived in small groups, usually numbering less than 50 people, and they were, for the most part, nomadic and, by our standards, highly egalitarian. Massive differentials in wealth and power arose later with sedentary agricultural life. Robert Strayer, in his world history textbook, Ways of the World, sums it up like this, With no formal chiefs, kings, bureaucrats, soldiers, nobles, or priests, Paleolithic men and women were perhaps freer of tyranny and oppression than any subsequent kind of human society, even if they were more constrained by the forces of nature. Genders seem to have been more equal than in most later societies, though there were certainly clear divisions of labor and separate spheres between male and female. In general, men were more involved with hunting, women more with gathering. In these tribal societies, leadership existed, but in a much more limited, temporary, and um, less coercive fashion than what we're familiar with today, or even in ancient times. Leaders such as they were tended to arise organically within a society for specific purposes. For example, a guy who was known as the best hunter in his tribe would likely call the shots when a group went out after big game. Likewise, someone with a reputation as being a very cunning warrior might be calling the shots when it came time to defend the tribe against other tribes. But these sorts of leaders wouldn't have had anything resembling the permanent and coercive power and the titles and so on of later chieftains, let alone kings. Now, certainly there were natural distinctions between individual people, owing to size, strength, talents, attractiveness, intelligence, etc., inherent qualities like that. But the ramifications of these differences were relatively moderate compared with the inequalities that quickly arose in later times with the coming of agriculture and quote-unquote civilization. People in hunter-gatherer societies typically worked far fewer hours to meet their needs than later peoples, leaving them with a heck of a lot more leisure time. So, in other words, that means that for the vast majority of human existence, which is by far what is responsible for giving us the genetic hardware and software we have, human beings typically had far more leisure time than they do today. In other words, there's an evolutionarily based human need for leisure. So, right there, I just have to say as an aside, a giant middle finger to the Puritans and their work ethic Of work being inherently good for its own sake. Anthropologist Marshall Salins famously called hunter-gatherers the original affluent society because they satisfied their needs with a fairly small amount of what today we would call work. Now, certainly things weren't perfect, and I don't want to depict some sort of utopian history of these hunter-gatherers. It's actually true that violent death at the hands of another human being seems to have been a more frequent cause of death in hunter-gatherer societies than in later agricultural slash sedentary societies. Also, of course, there's the possibility that things can go against you when you're hunting large and or dangerous game. But when it came to sort of medical health, barring injury at the hands of an animal or accident or another human being, these people tended to be healthier uh, by many measures than later agricultural people. And certainly based on on what we can tell, and also of what we know of later hunter-gatherer societies uh, who endured, even into the modern era, they also tended to have um, less of what we might call mental illnesses than post-agricultural societies. Now, as late as 30,000 years ago, they, there were, according to current estimates, only about half a million people on planet Earth. So still the planet was mostly devoid of humans relative to what we're used to. And people were still mostly Uh, living the way they had since people came into being, with just, you know, minor innovations here and there as far as tools and weapons. But then, rather suddenly, beginning around 11,000 years ago or so, human beings in several regions began domesticating certain species of plants and animals and engaging in forms of food production other than just hunting and gathering. Now, why did this happen when it did? Well, it seems like a few factors may have come together at the same time. Um, Just a a few millennia before this, people in in some areas began to incorporate more uh, wild grains into their diet via hunting and gathering. So there was increasing familiarity with certain things that would later become domesticated crops. In addition, this is roughly around the time that the last ice age was coming to an end. As a result, many of the megafauna, the giant animals that people had previously hunted, began to fade away. Now, these extinctions were primarily caused just by the climate changing but they were probably accelerated to a certain degree by human predation, since by this period humans were geographically pretty widespread. Beginning a little bit before this time period, just before the agricultural revolution, we find people in a few areas becoming more sedentary. And this actually set the stage for what is known as the Neolithic Revolution or the Agricultural Revolution, sometimes referred to as the First Agricultural Revolution, because some people speak of a one or two... um, significant changes in food production occurring in the modern era as agricultural revolutions. So anyway, beginning around uh, 11,000 BC to 10,000 BC thereabouts, the so-called Neolithic or Agricultural Revolution began to occur in several parts of the world. The term Neolithic or Agricultural Revolution, all it means is a shift from hunting-gathering-type lifestyle to agriculture as the main way of procuring food. And then tied into that, Uh, It encompasses a lot of other associated changes in human society, such as increases in population density in the areas affected by this revolution. Things like urbanization, significantly increased uh, social stratification, increases in human specialization in terms of the task one does with most of one's uh, waking time. You know, the division of labor. You also start to get more complex forms of art, larger and more complex forms of architecture much more uh, centralized and hierarchical forms of government, of course, involving into what we would think of as early states. And you also get writing, or at least something that performs the analogous function, even if it's not something that most of us would immediately consider or recognize uh, as writing. Now, some of these changes and developments were net positives to human beings overall, while some of them benefited only a small few um, elite people and actually were detrimental to the vast majority. Some of them also were changes that um, in the short term harmed people and perhaps in the long term um, had some benefits. Now, in most of the areas where this agricultural revolution occurred, one or more species of grain became the main source of food for most of the population. And this thus became um, intricately connected to the increasingly coercive and hierarchical political systems. In other words, almost everywhere, with just a few notable exceptions, states were built on grain. Now here's an interesting question. Which came first, sedentism or agriculture? In other words, did people settle down and stay in one place first, or did they start farming first? And what's interesting is the answer seems to have been the former. Sedentism came first. Certain people began to adopt a sedentary lifestyle before they adopted agriculture as we know it. The earliest sedentary societies emerged around river mouths where skillful fishing of migratory schools of fish allowed them to stay put and yet also be fruitful and multiply. They could thrive without having to be nomadic as human beings had typically been before. And only later did some of these sedentary societies begin to make the switch to agriculture. It should be pointed out that becoming sedentary in and of itself does not necessarily require fixed field agriculture based on staple crops such as grain. But as James C. Scott says in the lecture that I mentioned before, quote, sedentarization does not require domesticated field crops. State formation does, end quote. This is how Richard Manning describes the relationship in his book Against the Grain, How Agriculture Hijacks Civilization sedentism was a precondition of agriculture this flies directly in the face of the just so story that suggests it was the efficiency of agriculture that made settlement possible in fact the archaeological evidence suggests quite the reverse that sedentism the radical human experiment with staying put made agriculture possible and not vice versa agriculture did not arise from need so much as it did from relative abundance People stayed put, had the leisure to experiment with plants, lived in coastal zones where floods gave them the model of and denizens of disturbance, built up permanent settlements that increasingly created disturbance, and were able to support a higher birth rate because of sedentism, end quote. By the way, his use of the word disturbance in the quote I just read refers to the fact that grains in particular are oftentimes crops that thrive in nature best where there's been disturbance fires and floods and things like this and so human beings started to adopt these plants when when there were disturbances and where you find grain agriculture generally emerging the earliest is in areas where nature provided some amount of disturbance now this agricultural revolution certainly allowed people to proliferate in terms of quantity What it did to quality of human life and of the humans themselves is another matter entirely, but without question. Within about 5,000 years of the beginning of the agricultural revolution, the population of human beings on Earth exploded nearly tenfold, from about 6 million to somewhere in the neighborhood of 50 million. However, it took thousands of years from the beginning of the agricultural revolution for genuine cities and, and states as we know them to emerge And in fact, long after the year 1000 AD, in many parts of the world, human beings still lived without what we would consider proper cities or states. So understand, this is all a gradual process. It wasn't like, bam, one day we settle down, bam, the next day we've got agriculture, bam, the next day we've got states. It was a gradual thing that occurred over centuries and even millennia. But whether rightly or wrongly, the places in which you had... Large, dense, settled populations with cities and states are usually considered, quote-unquote, civilizations, while human societies lacking some or most of these things have not been considered civilizations, although this is starting to change a bit in the scholarship. Traditional narratives, which, of course... Were always written by the powers that be, or by propagandists working for them, have always tended to portray this transition to agriculture as progress, undeniable progress, as good and natural and entirely beneficial and certainly superior to any alternatives. But again, a lot of modern scholarship on many fronts calls into, into question that narrative. As Robert Strayer sums it up in Ways of the World, quote, Farming involved hard work and more of it than in many earlier gathering and hunting societies. The remains of early agricultural people show some deterioration in health. More tooth decay, malnutrition and anemia, a shorter physical stature, and diminished life expectancy. Living close to animals subjected humans to new diseases. Smallpox, flu, measles, chickenpox, malaria, tuberculosis, rabies. While living in larger communities generated epidemics for the first time in human history. Furthermore, relying on a small number of plants or animals rendered only agricultural societies vulnerable to famine in case of crop failure, drought, or other catastrophes. The advent of agriculture bore costs as well as benefits. End quote. Now, agricultural life, all the evidence shows, was just not beneficial to the physical health of most individual people, which is something that the physical remains of various ancient peoples clearly show. Ancient farmers' remains often show signs of serious health problems that one simply does not find among the remains of hunter-gatherers from the same time periods. And very often these are problems caused by uh, consuming a non-diverse grain-heavy diet and also problems caused by the physical laboring of the fields and in the grinding of, of grain and things like that. It's very different from the sorts of physical activities that human beings had evolved over tens of thousands of years to do as hunter-gatherers, you start to see arthritis and back problems and bone and joint problems and things like this among agricultural peoples. And it's definitely true. Early farmers were significantly smaller in stature than nearby hunter-gatherer societies that remained. Now it's true that farming societies pretty much everywhere uh, conquered hunter-gatherer societies, but they won war by quantity rather than by quality, and of course also a big part of. The conquest of hunter-gatherers was carrying of epidemic diseases of the agricultural peoples into their territories. Great case in point is what happened to, you know, the majority of Native Americans who were killed once Europeans showed up, died not of swords or bullets or anything like that, but of things like smallpox.
0: This show is supported by State Farm. Insurance is a part of any solid financial plan. Making sure you have the important things in life covered is one of the best ways to give yourself a little breathing room when things go awry. It's important to protect not only your business, but yourself as a business owner and all current and future team members. Talk to your local agent today. From ancient
2: to relatively modern times, the transition to fixed agriculture seems rarely to have been much of a voluntary choice. It seems like in most cases, people were forced either by nature or by rulers or both. As Richard Manning points out in Against the Grain, quote, we have no clear examples of colonized hunter-gatherers who willingly peacefully converted to farming. Most went as slaves. Most were dragged, kicking and screaming, or just plain died, end quote. In fact, as Manning points out, quote, By and large, farming spread by genocide. Those hunter-gatherers who apparently chose to adopt it tended to pick and choose, to assimilate only those parts of it that were attractive to them. Pastoralism most often, end quote. Many, many people since the Neolithic Revolution have deliberately resisted incorporation into, quote unquote, civilization because they understood very well that it meant a drastic loss in their basic individual personal freedom. For a lot more detail on many examples of this phenomenon, mostly from Southeast Asia, but some mentions of a few others as well. Of course, read the great book, The Art of Not Being Governed by James Scott. Scott and many others have made the argument that humans, in a way, become slaves. Once they've domesticated plants and animals, they become slaves to taking care of those domesticated plants and animals. Because in domesticating those species, in making them in various ways more useful and amenable to human preferences, humans made them weaker in terms of their vulnerability to nature and made them thus far more dependent on human care and human protection to survive. And so people, as they become enslaved to these different plants and animals, human life becomes much more monotonous, especially when you're talking about fixed-field monocrop agriculture, compared to things like the variety of life and the variety of tasks that humans evolved with as the norm when they were hunter-gatherers. In fact, in the book Against the Grain, Richard Manning says that agriculture fundamentally dehumanized people. Very interesting. Now, this might explain why not only have many types of physical ailments become more common as we've become more, quote unquote, civilized, but so have a lot of psychological ailments, evidence, including looking at modern Remnants of hunter-gatherer societies shows that they rarely suffer from things like depression that to us are super duper common. In fact, last I checked, the number one ailment for which drugs are prescribed in America today is in fact depression. And every year, vastly more people in the United States die of suicide than die of terrorism. In fact, in many recent years in the US military, more people are killed by suicide than are killed by enemy bullets and bombs so there's just something not right about this monotonous world that we've created for ourselves this dehumanizing world doesn't the evidence doesn't seem to support that it's good for us physically or mentally but it is good for certain small groups of people in each society now i want to talk a little bit about the domestication of grain specifically More than two-thirds of all human food consumption today is comprised of just four crops, corn or maize, wheat, rice, and potatoes. And all but the last one, potatoes, are, of course, grains. And then there's, of course, soybeans, which are actually, I think, classified as a grain, although they're a legume, and they're also one of the top major global food crops and also used for its oil and things like this. And for the most part, throughout the world, and this is true ancient to medieval to modern times, there's a a pretty strong correlation that unless you're a hunter-gatherer, the poorer you are, the greater the percentage of your diet is comprised of cheap, grain-rich or grain-based foods. The elites, by contrast, tend to get a lot more of their nutrition from other things like meat and vegetables and fruits and things like this. And they always have. You can go back to a long time ago and you find the elites eating a much more well-rounded, nutritious diet, while the, the serfs have to subsist on gruel. Gruel is for the serfs. Gruel, by which I mean, you know, shorthand for sort of grains in general, gruel is great at growing a large number of people, but who are smaller, less healthy, that kind of thing. In other words, grain provides a society that's all about quantity over quality when it comes to human beings. But of course, the aristocrats within that society, everything's the reverse. So, this is why historically the ruling classes are almost always taller, stronger, healthier, etc., than the peasants over whom they lord it. Now, each of those four crops I mentioned before that, that comprise the bulk of human consumption today, each of them originated in a specific place and then took thousands of years to spread all around the world. So maize was first domesticated and cultivated in central Mexico, wheat in the Middle East, rice in East and South Asia, and potatoes in the Andes Mountains region of South America. Now, the two factors that cause these agricultural revolutions in these specific areas, number one is the natural availability of a plant species that's really useful to humans and can be domesticated. And the second is apparently a natural catastrophe of some sort, likely fire, flood or both. You see, it just so happens that in nature, grains are a colonizing plant that comes in following things like environmental natural disasters. So in other words... In these particular areas where these species were available, you have a situation where some natural disasters hit, um, you know, environmental problems, flood, fire, whatever. This reduces the availability of a lot of the, the things that people previously used to eat. And then the damage from the calamity causes things like grains to grow more abundantly than they would before because they're this colonizing plant. And so as a result, people adapt to this and then they figure out how to cultivate these things themselves rather than just gathering them from nature. People in the Western Hemisphere, what later get known as the Native Americans, they switch to agriculture, but generally even this, you know, not all of them switch to agriculture. First off, it should be mentioned. I did a show on the Calusa Indians, who are a case of people who uh, basically had nothing that we would think of as agriculture other than maybe a tiny bit of, of uh, gardening for peppers or something. And then there are other examples, you know, the, the northern tribes didn't really have agriculture, the Inuit and so on. But even among those tribes that did, for the most part, switch to agriculture for their subsistence, they still maintained hunting and or gathering and fishing to more of a degree than Eurasians did. And the, the biggest reason for this was the almost complete absence of really domesticable animal species, especially large domesticable animal species in the New World prior to European contact pigs, sheep, cattle, horses, etc. You know, most of the main livestock animals, especially the larger ones, were simply not available in nature prior to the Colombian voyages. Native Americans basically had llamas and alpacas, which aren't as good as some of those other species from a utility standpoint. And not only that, not only are llamas and alpacas not as useful as some of the old world species, they also weren't very widespread geographically. And so because of this uh, relative poverty of livestock, this reduced Native Americans potential supplies of energy, you know, animal power to help you uh in in larger scale and and more effectively do things like plow fields and transport goods, and then this relative lack of livestock also reduced fertilizer because it reduced how much manure you could use to help your fields be more productive. So it wasn't that the Native Americans were any quote-unquote dumber or anything like that. It was simply they were making do with what they had, and what they had was not always quite as productive in the agricultural uh, arena anyway as what the Eurasians had access to. And for more on a lot of this stuff, you can check out Guns, Germs, and Steel by Jared Diamond. And one other thing that that Diamond points out in Guns, Germs, and Steel is simply geographical layout of the various major landmasses on Earth. It just so happens that the American continents, both north and south, are for the most part laid out in a much more north-south orientation, in contrast to Eurasia, which is much more of what Diamond refers to as an east-west axis. It goes more, you know, side-to-side in terms of the continent's layout. So what this means is that in Eurasia, it's a lot easier for really useful crops to be spread more rapidly, because climate, of course, tends to vary a lot less drastically when you move east and west, as opposed to when you move north or south. So you have these various arenas of the world in which there's an agricultural revolution. In some places, it's it's more dramatic and causes more change than others. But in all places, it's pretty, pretty darn dramatic compared to what came before. And sedentary agriculture in general, and grain agriculture in particular, led, not immediately, it didn't happen like flipping a switch, we're talking uh, centuries, maybe even a few millennia. Not immediately, but eventually, sedentary agriculture led to the beginnings of civilization. Now, civilization is a tricky term. It's one of those things a lot of people seem to have an attitude towards it, like the famous uh, Supreme Court justice statement on, on pornography. I can't define it, but I know it when I see it, right? A lot of people seem to have that attitude towards civilization, and different scholars and intellectuals have tried to define civilization in different ways. And understand, the exact criteria for defining what is and is not a civilization are very controversial. Literacy has traditionally been used as kind of the major dividing line between so-called civilized and uncivilized human societies. But today, that's a lot less universal. And scholars today are much more likely to classify at least some non-literate societies as civilizations if they are complex and have certain other characteristics. Interestingly, one characteristic that is often used to delineate civilizations is the presence of some type of a state, an organized institution that compels obedience from the people in a given territory and an institution that attempts as much as possible anyway within its logistic capabilities to monopolize violence. The ancient Sumerians, with their city-states and eventually early empires, are commonly portrayed as the world's first true civilization in the full-fledged meaning of the term, especially in the traditional understandings of the term. Their civilization arose in Mesopotamia, modern-day Iraq, around 3500 BC or thereabouts, roughly around the same time, maybe slightly later, you get Egyptian civilization near the mouth of the Nile River roughly around the same time as that. Um, there's an interesting civilization that I don't actually don't know that much about that, uh, at least today, we called Norte Chico along the Peruvian coast, which I'll have to look more into. I've put it on my list of 20,000 things to look more into. This civilization is unusual compared to the others from its time period in that it relied heavily on fishing and had no grain agriculture. Now, roughly a few centuries before the year 2000 BC, Chinese civilization began to emerge, as did a civilization in the Indus Valley in modern-day Pakistan, which seems to have been a little bit less warlike and hierarchical than most other early civilizations. Now, in early civilizations is where one typically begins to see vast inequalities in human material condition. You tend to get political and religious elites who are often either the same people, the same individuals, or at least are very closely connected and allied to each other. These elites who live, in material terms, a much better life in pretty much every way than everyone else. And these are also people who are able to avoid physical labor, whereas everyone else backbreaking labor in the fields and so on. Now, below the elites in these early civilizations, you have what are sometimes referred to as free commoners, most of whom would have been farmers and also some smaller numbers of artisans and things like that. Through a combination of various types of taxes and or what's called corvée labor, which if you don't know that term, it's simply a quotas of required work. It might mean you're not a slave, but you owe your political masters or whatever a certain number of days of unpaid labor per year. This is a feature, for example, later of of, uh, medieval serfdom. But it actually was happening way back in ancient times. So you might be a free commoner, but not only do you have to pay some taxes, you also have to do some labor. Shows you, right, the hollowness of the word free in a lot of cases. So anyway, through a combination of various sorts of taxes, usually also along with corvee labor, these people, these free commoners, whether they're the majority, the, the small farmers, or they're the urban artisans, these people largely funded their respective states with the surplus of their productivity now of course a lot of people in these early civilizations were not even at that uh, level of free commoner they were slaves and it is of course absolutely true that the rise of civilization and the rise of slavery went hand in hand as robert strayer puts it quote slavery and civilization in fact seem to have emerged together from the days of the earliest civilizations until the 19th century, the practice of people owning people was an enduring feature of state based societies everywhere. End quote. Now, in addition to class stratification, gender inequalities also tended to magnify over what they were before civilization and the state and those types of institutions came into being. Though rhetorically, Lots of early kings and emperors wanted to be and aspired to be totalitarian. The reality was that in practice, these very earliest states couldn't achieve anything resembling totalitarian aspirations simply due to the limitations of the logistics and technology of the time. It's hard to rule a vast territory and a vast population today in a totalitarian fashion with all the technologies we have today. Imagine trying to do it 5000 years ago. The reality is that regardless of their totalitarian rhetoric, in practice, these early states, including even the early empires, were often really run in a way that, by comparison to modern centralized nation states, was much more decentralized and localized. In other words, they kind of had to delegate, and there was a certain degree of negotiation between the center and the periphery in early states. While early states did provide certain functions that one could argue benefited society as a whole, such as certain types of infrastructure, you know, irrigation projects in certain areas that were kind of vital to everyone's survival, as well as protection from hostile neighbors, which, you know, could be real. It's not always a false flag, right? While one could argue that some of these functions were provided by early states, uh, one wonders whether those functions could have been better achieved, and perhaps at a lower cost in human misery through other means, through other methods of organization, through other practices, rather than coercive hierarchical institutions. The reality is that everywhere, by definition, states lived off of coercion and extraction, and they clearly benefited a small group of uh, wealthy elites a lot more than they benefited the overwhelming bulk of society. As I mentioned in my podcast on the Alliance of Throne and Altar back in DHP episode 82, rulers of states could and would use force when necessary. After all, that's literally part of the definition of what a state is. But they also found it useful, and generally a hell of a lot more efficient, to obtain obedience through belief as much as possible. Now, in early civilizations, These belief systems used to extract obedience were pretty much always religious in nature and always linked the rulers to the divine in some fashion or another. And because of the agricultural revolution and the rise of early states, religion changed from what it had been in the hunter-gatherer days. It became much more hierarchical, much more rigid, much more formalized. You had a professional priesthood of some type analogous to that you start to get standing armies showing up rather than sort of formal or informal militia organizations more and more there are professional full-time standing armies in a lot of these early states writing emerged and while it certainly had a lot of upsides for humanity and I appreciate writing and being able to read it today the reality is that writing emerged especially early on first and foremost as a powerful tool of the state for things like record-keeping, for tax and corvée labor purposes, as well as, of course, for propaganda purposes. And I ought to mention that monumental architecture from early states also served a propaganda purpose and reinforced the, I don't know, what, what would you say, the hegemonic, I guess, the hegemonic beliefs in the divine nature of your ruler, All those pyramids and other monuments and things like this that inspire awe, they're meant to inspire awe, and you can go visit a pyramid or some other great ancient structure today and look at it and say, yeah, that's cool, and take photos and whatever. But you've got to understand that it was meant, above all else, to inspire a feeling in the subject class of, I am small, I am insignificant, my rulers are divine, and I should obey them. And they were very effective, like I've mentioned a few times previously, social stratification got a lot more extreme and a lot more rigid in these early states. And understand, I'm not primarily here talking about the, uh, for lack of a better term, sort of natural aristocracy that exists of people who are more naturally gifted in some areas. Other than maybe in cunning and psychopathy, I guess that's that's one natural quote-unquote gift that might be on display here. I'm not talking about people who work hard or are talented or whatever and sort of naturally are successful. I'm talking about stuff like titles and status, often arbitrary, based on birth, on inheritance, or based simply on being a more skillful person at using force to unseat a previous ruler. This sort of social stratification... Began to really, really uh, increase. These sorts of things made one simply entitled to a better standard of living than the rest of one's society, assuming that one was one of the lucky few, of course. And again, I want to emphasize here we're not talking about someone becoming successful due to effectively competing in the marketplace to supply consumers' demands. We're talking about people becoming more wealthy and more powerful due to the exercise of force over others. Richard Manning talks about this sort of phenomenon in Against the Grain as follows, quote: Much has been made of the creative forces that agriculture unleashed, and this is fair enough. Art, libraries, and literacy are all agriculture's legacy. But around the world, the first agricultural towns are marked by pyramids, temples, ziggurats, and great walls, all monuments reaching for the sky. The better to elevate the potentates in command of the construction. In each case, their command was a demonstration of total control over a huge force of stoop labor, often organized in one of civilization's favorite institutions, slavery. The monuments are a clear indication that, for a lot of people, life did not get better under agriculture. Agriculture created great wealth, for sure, but it also created poverty in a way. That poverty had not existed in hunter gatherer societies. In fact, true famine only began when people started to adopt sedentary agriculture based on a narrow group of plants and animals. Hunter gatherers might get low on food at some point temporarily, but they usually don't experience famine the way we think of famine. Typically, they had options. Typically, you know, let's say your preferred foods are not available for one reason or another seasonality, natural disaster, whatever. Well, if you're a hunter-gatherer, you're usually pretty versatile. And so, yeah, your favorite foods might be in short supply, but you could probably shift over to something. Maybe you don't like quite as much, but it'll get you by until the stuff you like better returns. But if you're doing agriculture with just a handful of species of plants and animals, you might be screwed. Just ask the Irish the, who, who lived through the potato famine. States, whether we're talking about ancient all the way through to the present day, over the millennia, states love grain and very often encourage people to cultivate it and consume it more than they otherwise might if all things were just sort of left alone. Speaking of the specific case of Southeast Asia, where irrigated rice was the preferred agriculture method for state builders throughout the millennia, James C. Scott writes in The Art of Not Being Governed, quote, Conditions in a flourishing wet rice heartland were favorable to the development of what might be called the pre-modern state's ideal subjects. That ideal is represented by densely packed cultivators of permanent grain fields who produce a considerable annual surplus. Having put considerable labor into their paddy fields, over generations perhaps, they are reluctant to pack up and leave. They and their rice fields are, above all, Fixed in space, legible, taxable, conscriptible, and close at hand. For the court and its officials, the advantages are obvious. End quote. Scott's remarks about wet rice in East Asia apply to most grain cultivation and the states that are related to them in varying degrees. It's just irrigated rice is one of the most extreme cases of all of the aspects of grains that states like. Whether we're talking about rice in South and East Asia, or wheat in the Middle East and the temperate parts of Eurasia, or maize in some of the larger Native American societies, grains simply have certain attributes that tend to make them the favored crop of state builders. Premodern states, and this is also basically true of modern states, but it was even more true of premodern states. Premodern state builders, above all else, needed to concentrate manpower. It is very hard to control and exploit people if they're spread out and if they have lots of opportunities to leave and just go off on their own into the woods or whatever. You want to concentrate manpower. This requires a population that is sedentary, in other words, that is fixed in place, and then you need some method of feeding that big population that is concentrated and fixed in one spot. From the ruler's perspective, it didn't particularly matter if the food in question was the best in terms of nutrition, And like I've indicated before, state builders typically prefer quantity over quality, at least among the rank and file grunts of their state, the masses. They, of course, may prefer quality in terms of nutrition and health for themselves, for the ruling class, and sometimes also for their enforcers as well. Obviously, there are advantages if your your thugs, your soldiers, whatever, are bigger, stronger than the proles. Anyway, most grains tend to be what James C. Scott describes as legible crops, meaning they're easy and convenient for state authorities to keep track of, to confiscate, to control, to use as leverage, etc. In The Art of Not Being Governed, Scott points out that what pre-modern rulers wanted, and I think this is also still true to a degree, not just in agriculture, by the way, of modern states, what pre-modern rulers wanted more than gross domestic product or GDP just a larger economy. What they really wanted was to maximize what Scott refers to as state accessible product or SAP, state accessible product. Again, I would argue this is equally, if not more true of the modern state as well. And of course, the modern economy is much more varied and has a lot more to it than just agriculture. And so, in general, states, I think, tend to prefer they would rather have a less productive economy in absolute terms, but that's easier for them to control and exploit and uh, take their cut from than to have a much more productive, thriving economy, but which is harder for them to control and to take their cut from. James E. Scott writes this in The Art of Not Being Governed, quote, State accessible product and gross domestic product are not simply different. They are, in many respects, at odds with each other. Successful state building is directed towards the maximization of the state-accessible product. It profits the ruler not at all if his nominal subjects flourish, say, by foraging, hunting, or shifting agriculture at too great a distance from court. It similarly profits the ruler little if his subjects grow a diverse suite of crops of different maturation, or crops that spoil quickly, and are therefore hard to assess, collect, and store. Given a choice between patterns of subsistence that are relatively unfavorable to the cultivator, but which yield a greater return in manpower or grain to the state, and those patterns which benefit the cultivator but deprive the state, the ruler will choose the former every time. The ruler, then, maximizes the state-accessible product, if necessary, at the expense of the overall wealth of the realm and its subjects, end quote. So what does grain do? What are its characteristics? And again, these words by Scott have already alluded to a lot of this, but just to delve into it in detail. Grain agriculture tends to concentrate population compared to other forms of food production. Irrigated rice, of course, the most extreme example of this, but it's true of other forms of grain to a lesser extent as well. States have always preferred concentrated populations to dispersed ones. It's easier to control, easier to monitor, easier to exploit, etc. Notice how many modern, quote-unquote, green policies are aimed at herding more people into dense urban areas, whether they like it or not. Now, I'm not putting you down if you like living in a big, dense urban area. You know, people like different stuff. But I've noticed, and I'm not the only one, how much modern states really want to force everybody into that whether they actually want it or not whether the people in question want it or not grains are basically uniform especially if it's a full-on monoculture all production all steps from planting to harvesting and everything in between and even the things after harvesting like grinding it up and whatever all this stuff is occurring in the same annual rhythms it makes things a lot simpler a lot easier for state agents to monitor to control and to confiscate And there is a spillover effect. Scott and lots of the other authors I've referenced and quoted from this episode talk about. There's this spillover effect where it tends to make other aspects of life much more uniform as well. This uniformity makes society more uniform. And of course, this is to the benefit of rulers. It's easier to control people who are homogenized than to control a bunch of weird, quirky, unique, motley individuals. Grain ripens at the same time you know, for the same species in the same location. And in addition to that, it has to be harvested during a relatively narrow window of time. It's not a crop you can just... It's an annual crop, so it's not one you can just sit there and let grow until later and then harvest it. Of course, it helps that grains grow above ground, making them very easy to see, to count, to keep track of as well. Grains are also highly storable. If they're properly stored, most grains can stay good for many years. Now, this allows states to collect huge amounts through taxes and store them in giant granaries and whatever without the fear that their their spoils their revenue will go bad and lose all their value. And it's very true that the rise of states and the rise of granaries go hand in hand. Other than palaces and religious institutions, some of the earliest large buildings that you find in early states are granaries. In most early states Taxes were primarily paid by most of the population in the form of grain. In fact, if you've listened to my DHP Patreon bonus episode that I did a couple months ago on Samurai and Ninjas, you may recall I mentioned in there how central rice really was to Japan's feudal economy and society. Most taxes were collected in the form of rice. And of course, as I mentioned there, a samurai's annual salary from the Lord that he served was paid for in units of rice as well. And the more units of rice you earned every year, the more prestigious of a samurai you were. Grains are also predictable in that, other than during abnormal times like droughts and floods, with a little bit of experience, one can very accurately estimate how much grain a given unit of land is going to yield. Now, think of how much help this gives to ancient tax collectors, right? Makes it a lot easier for them to know how much a farmer would produce and therefore how much he would owe. And it's another way that grains made it harder to dodge taxes than if you were using a more variety of crops that were a little bit less easy to monitor and calculate and all that. In fact, geometry actually began as a method for tax collectors to figure out how much a farmer would owe, even before his crop was ready to harvest, simply by the amount of land he had. This preference for grains and this tendency of states to encourage people in various ways to rely more on grain for their food than they otherwise might continues right on through to the present as james c scott writes quote as a general rule the agriculture organized by and for states and enterprises with appropriation above all in mind is likely to bear the marks of legibility and monocropping monoculture plantations the now defunct collective farms of the socialist bloc Cotton sharecropping in the postbellum U.S. South, not to mention the coercive agricultural landscapes created by counterinsurgency campaigns in Vietnam or Malaya, are cases in point. They are rarely models of efficient or sustainable agriculture, but they are, and they are intended to be, models of legibility and appropriation. The policy of encouraging or imposing legible, agrarian landscapes of appropriation seems hardwired to state-making." Now, fixed-field grain agriculture took over much of the world, not because it's in any way objectively better or superior to alternatives, but simply because it serves the interests of rulers and would-be rulers better than other alternatives, even though those other alternatives might actually be a lot better from the perspective of the average person. Historically, there have been multiple alternatives to things like the sedentary, grain centric, monocropistic agriculture that's come to dominate the world. Now, obviously, there's the original hunter gatherer way. May not be, you know, realistic for everybody today, obviously, to make their entire living off of that, given population density and what's been done to a lot of the environment. But it still is possible in many areas for at least a percentage of one's food to come from hunter gatherer activities, including, you know, gathering wild plants, hunting, fishing, all that stuff. I guarantee you at least one, if not several of those things is available to you in a reasonable distance. There's also nomadic or semi-nomadic herding, which again, not realistic given the situation in most of the world today. Although I'd also point out in the case of hunter-gatherer lifestyle and, and nomadic herding, that had humanity stuck more with those ways of making a living, Overall, there would be a lot more areas in the world conducive to that sort of activity. The fact that geographically there's not as much ability to make a living from these things is simply due to the fact that because of the preferences of states, sedentary monocrop agriculture, largely around grains, has taken over massive amounts of of real estate and had a big, huge effect on what's available in quote-unquote nature in fact in many places it's problematized what nature even is another alternative that in many western ears has a a bad ring to it but in fact historically that wasn't the case is what's called slash and burn agriculture also known as swiddening. and james scott talks a lot about this especially in the art of not being governed this is a kind of semi-nomadic form of agriculture where one is using fire rather than the plow to do a lot of their sort of work of creating and, and prepping fields. This is actually a more efficient form of agriculture than sedentary farming when measured in terms of production per man hour. In other words, it gets you more for your labor. It allows you to work less and have more food, in other words. But swiddening is less efficient when you're looking at it in terms of it's production per acre of land than intensive sedentary farming. So in other words, intensive sedentary farming will get you more food per unit of land, but it's going to require a crap load of human labor. By contrast, swiddening is much more efficient from the standpoint of labor. It gets you more food for less work, but it requires, you know, a bit more land. So from a state's point of view, swiddening sucks. It is In terms of, like, actual farming, probably the least preferred form of farming on the parts of states, in part because the people tend to be mobile and all that, but also in part because the sorts of crops that are associated with swiddening are the types of crops that are a lot harder to control, a lot harder to surveil, a lot harder to confiscate, to tax, etc. If you're a state, it's just a lot harder to impose your will on people conducting that sort of lifestyle than it is against people who are sedentary using what we know of as conventional agriculture now all these alternatives hunting gathering nomadic herding swiddening all of them states both pre-modern and modern have tended for the most part to actively discourage these forms of production through a variety of means ranging on the one hand from simple social stigma in other words portraying practitioners of these lifestyles as inferior barbarians and you know whatever to, in some cases, trying to bribe non-state peoples with the material goods and culture of metropolitan civilization in order to get them to give up their ways. Of course, never mind that the pluses of civilization have, until very recently, only been available to tiny elites in each civilization. But uh, that's, that's been the propaganda, right? Come, come join the civilization and you can have all these goods and luxury and what have you. Two, of course, flat-out conquest and genocide and all sorts of measures in between states have employed against these alternative ways of providing food. And of course, very recently, modern states, in seeking to eliminate what remains of slash-and-burn agriculture or swiddening, often demonize it as bad for the environment, though historically, at least in terms of the traditional ways it was done, this was largely untrue. In fact, traditional slash-and-burn agriculture actually harms the environment a lot less than modern monocrop agriculture does. All of these alternatives, when effectively practiced the way people used to thousands of years ago and in a few parts of the world up until fairly recently, all of these alternatives provide more return for labor input than sedentary, large-scale grain agriculture. And as a result, humans naturally want to get the most for the smallest amount of labor. Wouldn't you rather work an hour and earn a million dollars than work 40 hours and earn a hundred dollars? So not surprisingly, throughout history, humans tend to naturally prefer these alternatives that are more productive in terms of their labor when those are available. In order to go into standard agriculture, humans have to be forced, again, either by political power or by natural disaster, to start taking it up. Once that process starts, then you get this hegemonic propaganda that comes in and is uh used to make any alternative system seem bad and impractical and, in fact, a retrograde step, a reversal of progress. And, of course, the most effective propaganda is the propaganda that prevents people from even considering alternatives at all, from even realizing that any alternatives to the current paradigm exist. And if you subject hundreds or even thousands of generations to this sort of narrative... And you get people who largely are unwilling and unable to even consider any alternatives, either to the state or to grain-centered agriculture. You get where we are today. Now, I want to talk just a little bit about grains in the state in modern world. This will by no means be an exhaustive or detailed report on this. Plenty of people, particularly a lot of people among the low-carb and sort of paleo-primal type people who are kind of, you know, anti-grain from a nutritional stand of, standpoint primarily – Uh, These people, and I don't claim to be a a biologist or a nutrition expert or whatever, but these sorts of people have already done a lot of detail showing the links between grains and the state, especially in kind of the developed world in recent years. As far as I know, and again, I've not done an exhaustive study, so, you know, I'm sure there are exceptions or whatever, but to my knowledge... Most countries in the world, most governments in the world have agricultural subsidies and regulations that looking at the totality, among other things, to one degree or another, either by default or purposefully encourage their citizens to consume large amounts of grain and uh, in many cases also encourage production of large amounts of grain. Just think of the old long-standing FDA food group pyramid, right? It had grains on the base And it recommended six to 11 servings of grains a day. That's a crap load of wheat, gluten, carbs, whatever you want to call it. By contrast, that same food pyramid, which was the paradigm for decades, recommended only two to three servings of meat per day and very limited amounts of fat. Not even any number of servings. It just said, use sparingly. And it didn't even really get into like some fats are actually really good for you. (laughs) Now, they've scrapped the food pyramid. Your tax dollars at work. And they replaced it with choose my plate. And I think that's all one word. Now, choose my plate is not as ridiculously overwhelmingly slanted towards grain as the old pyramid, but it still calls for at least a quarter of your calorie intake to be composed of grains. Now, could this be because of Monsanto, Conagra, etc., all the others grow a crapload of grain (laughs) so they want you to consume a crapload of grain? And whether it's actually good for you physically, mentally, uh, socially, economically, irrelevant. USD agriculture regulations and subsidies and all that, they overwhelmingly tend to benefit large-scale grain producers, which is why things like canola oil, soybean oil, high fructose corn syrup are so ubiquitous throughout the United States, even though there's a lot of evidence to show that these things are not good for you. Also, how about ethanol subsidies, which are not actually a net plus for the environment or the economy, which are basically just welfare to agribusiness, who, by the way, happen to contribute heavily to the politicians who then vote for all the ethanol subsidies and whatnot. These policies, like most government policies regarding agriculture, and for that matter, regarding anything just about make no sense when you're looking holistically at the economy and the society. But they endure year after year after year because they benefit wealthy and powerful interests who are willing and able to expend huge amounts of resources to keep them in place. And I would just refer you to what's known as public choice theory of economics for a much more detailed understanding of how this phenomenon works, how in a so-called alleged democracy. Where in theory, the majority rules. How do tiny special interests always get their way? And the majority often is thwarted, even in cases where it might actually be right, for lack of a better term. The majority might actually be um, wanting something that might be preferable. But, uh, you know, tiny special interests get their way over that. Public choice theory. Look it up if you're not familiar with it. And of course, in many cases that are much more horrific and extreme than the U.S., one can frequently see control of the food supply used as a mass murdering weapon and as a as a massive um, lever on which to work the state's will against the population, whether that population wants it or not. And of course, in these situations, grain is almost always the big thing. Grain tends to be the easiest food, of, food to control. Hasn't changed since ancient times. You want to be able to control a society, get them very, very dependent for most of their food on one or two types of grain, And then have the ability to control that, have the ability to decide who gets it and who doesn't. Whether you're talking about Stalin's Soviet Union or Mao's China or even more recent famines in places like Ethiopia and North Korea, you see this happening. States like to control food because humans need food. They control food. They control you. And these sorts of things, these sorts of policies, whether deliberate or just sort of incidental, Famines are intimately connected to states. They have ancient roots. Richard Manning in Against the Grain writes, quote, modern famine is the result of bad government, but so was ancient famine. Poverty, government and famine are co-evolved species, End quote. So if we are to improve our lot, assuming you want that, I think we've got to understand the problem and we've got to understand the paths that have led us to where we are. We, meaning human beings, right? And I'm not being some nationalistic collective. We, as, as the human species, we've become domesticated just as much as the plants and the animals that we cultivate. And as just about anyone who knows anything about it knows, a domesticated livestock animal is a sad, weakly, dependent, vulnerable, sickly shadow of its wild origin. It might be more tame. It might be easier to herd around. But it's a hell of a lot less free, and it's generally pathetically dependent on its captors, who, of course, are only giving it food and other forms of care so that they can consume it down the road. We've been turned into domesticated livestock. As James C. Scott says in the lecture that I'm going to link to in the show notes on how grains domesticated us, quote, "...in domesticating much of the natural world, we in turn domesticated ourselves." Only in the context of these domestications did we become suitable raw material for the critical concentrated mass of foodstuffs and manpower that state formation requires. The state is both the beneficiary and the forcing house of these domestications, quote. Like I said earlier, states love to control food, and they love to control it for the same reason that in the modern era they love to control, as much as possible anyway, education, information money, health care, water, energy, and so on, because by controlling these important resources, they can control you. I understand we can't all be hunter-gatherers, nomadic herders, or swiddeners in the modern day. Not saying we can. Not saying there aren't downsides to all those lifestyles. Never claim that uh, hunter-gatherer paleolithic life- lifestyle is superior in every way to modern society. But it's certainly better in some ways, and it certainly is closer to kind of who we are from a basic evolutionary hardware and software point of view. But I understand we can't go back to those other forms right now. At least most of us can't, given the current circumstances of ourselves and of the world as we've altered it over the past however many, you know, 12,000 years or whatever since the Paleolithic gave way to the Neolithic. But what I'm suggesting just for your consideration is maybe... We can start to move as individuals towards systems that offer alternatives, towards systems that in some way or another combine the benefits of post-Neolithic Revolution civilization, everything from modern medicine to writing and all the cool technologies we have. Hey, I love the Internet. I love podcasting. I love my iPhone, right? I'm not saying let's all be Luddite cavemen. So maybe we can move in a direction where we combine some of these good things of what's happened since the Neolithic Revolution while avoiding or at least minimizing some of its worst aspects and features and side effects? In other words, can we replicate as much as possible some of the circumstances that were beneficial to some of our pre-Neolithic ancestors? Just throwing that out there for your consideration, not claiming that I've got all the answers or anything like that. And exactly how to do any of this, I'm not sure. I'm not enough of a scientist or an agricultural expert to give an informed expert opinion on anything like that. I would say that permaculture appears to offer some very interesting possibilities, perhaps when combined, especially with things like uh, some amount of foraging, fishing, hunting, again, where logistically, legally, financially it's possible. But beyond just a few suggestions and speculations and that sort of thing, I'm just not really willing to say. But I will say that looking at both the state and grain-centered monocrop agriculture... In both cases, I'm not 100% sure exactly what should or will replace our current systems and our current paradigms. But I do honestly believe that in both cases, the state and its handmaiden grain-centered monocrop agriculture, that if we don't begin looking for ways to opt out of these paradigms, of these systems, as much as we can, I do think that our species is likely on a path that will eventually sooner or later lead to some sort of disaster thank you for listening to the dangerous history podcast make sure to check out my website profcj.org that's profcj.org to find the show notes for this and every other dangerous history podcast episode while there you can also email subscribe to the website over in the right hand side you'll see a place to enter your email address and if you sign up there You'll simply get an email alert every time I post something new to my website. I promise you won't get any junk or spam or anything like that from me. For any correspondence, please feel free to email me at the email address profcj at profcj.org. You can also connect with and follow me and the show on Facebook and on Twitter, and you can subscribe to the podcast in a variety of ways, including iTunes and Stitcher. If you like the show, there are multiple ways you can help it out. One simply is to spread the word about it any way you have available to you, whether social media, online discussion postings, word of mouth, or whatever, to people that you think might like the show. Also, please consider leaving a review or a rating in venues such as iTunes or Stitcher. There are also multiple ways you can help out the show financially. One is to go to patreon.com slash profcj. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash P-R-O-F-C-J. And sign up to support the show on a per-episode basis. If you do that for any amount, I will thank you by name in the next episode that I record. And if you've signed up for at least a dollar per episode, you'll have access to special monthly bonus episodes via Patreon that are available no place else. You can also visit profcj.org slash donate to donate to the show via PayPal or Bitcoin. And you can also help the show out financially by doing your Amazon shopping after first going through any of the affiliate links found on my website. And if you do that, I will get a small commission from Amazon at no cost to you. So thanks again for listening to the Dangerous History Podcast. This has been Prof. CJ, helping you learn the past so you can understand the present and prepare for the future.